0: Chapter Eleven. Rick, haven't we been in John Eleven? Yes, we have. Bits and pieces. We're going to do the whole thing tonight, and uh, and then we're going to slow up a little bit. We've just crossed the halfway part mark in in John the halfway point of the gospel. Um, What's remarkable to me about the gospel of John is he spends the entire first half of the book, a whole half, on three and a half years of ministry. But the second half is on one week. So you kind of get a sense of where John's emphasis is going, uh, what he wants to focus in on, and what the Spirit was leading him to write. It's also interesting that there's a 19191 pattern to John 9 there's a, there's a symmetry to it what do you mean Rick chapter 1 is an introduction then we have nine chapters of the ministry of Jesus then we come to chapter 11 and it's the great sign of the raising of Lazarus then we have nine chapters of the last week of Jesus 1919 and then we have a final chapter of Jesus last appearance in the Galilee to Peter and the boys on the beach so it's, it's, it's got a beautiful symmetry to it. I don't think that John, any more than Matthew, Mark, or Luke were smart enough to figure stuff like that out. I think God just, you know, when the Spirit speaks, his word has symmetry and beauty to it that just comes with the territory. If you're God speaking your word, it's gonna be beautiful. Amen? Amen? So John chapter 11, we are almost to the final week of Jesus. And again, it's a little ironic because we've just had Good Friday and Easter and we've celebrated the resurrection and we're ready just to move on. Well, not so fast there. We're going to stay in John 11 and we haven't even gotten to the crucifixion in the gospel of John yet, much less the resurrection or those post appearances. And as I said a moment ago, I'm going to slow up now. We've been moving at quite a pace. I want to slow down and take our time because much of the teaching of Jesus, John 14, 15, and 16, the prayer of Jesus, John 17, there's so much coming here, more than just incidental things that we know about and want to be reminded of, but teachings that I believe we need to hear, especially in this day and age. So John chapter 11, verse one, now a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And it was the Mary who anointed the Lord with, her, with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. And what's interesting about that, this pre-mention of Mary anointing Jesus, it's a pre-mention because John doesn't even share the story till we get to chapter 12. It's not to be confused with the woman, the sinful woman who anointed Jesus' feet in the home of the Pharisee. This is now in a different home, home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. The home also the other Gospels will call the home of Simon the leper, who was probably their father, which is a great name to have. I, you know, wouldn't you love to be called Simon the leper all your life? But this mention tells us that. Mary's anointing of Jesus, while a very tender and very personal and very beautiful thing, we'll come to it at the beginning of chapter 12, was well known in the early church. Otherwise, I don't think John would have mentioned it in 11 saying it was the Mary who, remember the one who anointed the Lord with ointment? Well, if you're just reading John, you haven't even gotten to the story yet, so you must have some pre-knowledge of that story. Probably had been circulated and shared and spoken many times, which is what Jesus said, It will be told what this woman has done over and over. And so it it has been. But in verse three, we continue. So the sisters sent word to him, that is to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. But when Jesus heard, he said, this sickness is not to end in death. His language is specific. Doesn't say he's not going to die. He just says it's not going to end in death but for the glory of God so that the Son of God may be glorified by it. And pause and recognize what Jesus just said. This is for the glory of God so that the Son of God would be glorified. God said, I do not share my glory with another. But Jesus, once again, is equating himself with God. And there's just no way around it, especially as John records what Jesus said. Now, Jesus, verse five, loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. Lord, as we study these things, would you help us to see it as it happened, as, as much as we can, not through expanded imagination, but by revelation, Lord. Help us to enter into this story to get some uh, real-time perspective as if we were there with Jesus and the disciples with Mary and Martha watching as the tomb is opened, all of these things that are before us. I just ask you'll help us not to take this as a uh, scholarly exposition, but we would be personal with this and consider these things and just be real with what really happened. The Holy Spirit, I pray that you will seed these things in our hearts deeply, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen. Now, Jesus didn't play favorites, but he had them. He had favorites. He had those who were more beloved or closer to him, maybe not more beloved because the love of God is unsurpassed and agape, it's unconditional, but there were certain ones that Jesus gravitated to that he loved very much. We know that this gospel is written by the disciple whom he loved. And we know that there are many times where Jesus will be off with Peter and Peter and Yaakov and John, just the three. Sometimes they'll bring Andrew along with them. Kind of an inner circle of the inner circle of those whom Mark told us whom he had chosen to be with him, the apostles. And then there were the rest of the disciples fanning out from that. And then there were the crowds of people and he was tender and loving and compassionate with everyone, but Jesus had favorites. That's not a bad thing. I mean, Favors, just like you and I, we have people that are closer friends to us, people that we gravitate to. It doesn't mean that we think everyone else is horrible or are horrible. We just have, have people that we draw near to, and Jesus did. And those who were nearest and dearest to his heart would have to include this tight little sibling group of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. We get a sense of a house, a home, visited often by Jesus. Right on the other side of the Mount of Olives in that little town of Bethany, and what's interesting is I say this because they had to be at the very top of his list of dearly loved friends because in verse three, the sisters say, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. They don't say Lazarus is sick. They say he whom you love. Now, you know, they're, they're sisters. They're tugging on his heart a little bit. They want him to come quickly, but they say he whom you love Of course, the word love there is from the Greek word phileo, so it's deeply loved like a friend. He who is your deep, dear friend, he who you love as a friend is sick, but John takes it a step further in verse five and says, now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus, and the word changes to agape. So the reality is they sensed that he truly loved them as dear friends, but we know by the heart of Jesus as spoke by the spirit through John that really he unconditionally loved them. This is a Jesus who would do anything for Mary, Martha and Lazarus. By the way, he would do anything for you. He already has. But he loved them with agape love. And at the heart of this resurrection in John chapter 11, is a story of love. At the heart of this resurrection, it is a story of love. But I gotta give you three more quick things before we roll beyond these opening verses. Number one, location. Number two, Lazarus. And number three, love. Location, Lazarus, and love. So first off, the location, it's Bethany. Now, Jesus was in Bethany at this time, but not that Bethany, he was in a different Bethany. In fact, if you look back at verse 40 of chapter 10, it says he went away again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was at first baptizing, and he was staying there, and we know that was Bethany beyond Jordan. It's also called in the, called in the Hebrew Ma'avarot or Bet Abara, the place of the crossing. And we've, we've noted this several times that Jesus now had gone out there, and he's, he's out there kind of awaiting Passover. With the disciples, I think they're relieved that they're out there, not in Judea, not in Jerusalem, where his life is threatened. And by extension, if his life is threatened, our lives could be threatened. So I think they were at ease out there beyond the Jordan, Bethany beyond Jordan. 25 miles east of Jerusalem. 25 miles for us is not far, but when you gotta walk it, they're three days out from Jerusalem. They're in a safe place, good. Let's stay here, Jesus, in Bethany beyond Jordan, but not this Bethany, Lazarus of Bethany. If you were to stand on the top of the Mount of Olives, you would probably be looking west. That's what we do. That's what everybody does who stands on the top of the Mount of Olives. You look west toward Jerusalem. That's where the scene is. That's what draws your attention. The view is stirring. I've said it so many times because I I just, I go back there. You stand on the Mount of Olives. You look across the Kadron Valley and you see the Temple Mount and the Eastern Gate. It's a faux Eastern Gate, but you know right underneath it, underground there, and there's archaeological proof of this. I have pictures. There is the original Eastern Gate. And you look at that, and then you see beyond the Temple Mount, you see the old city, and then you see the new city of Jerusalem kind of fanning out uh, up to the north and and south and further out to the west. It's it's absolutely beautiful. And if you're on the Mount of Olives, that's the direction you want to look. That's Everybody gets pictures, you know? With that behind you, Jerusalem, you want to see Jerusalem, the city of the great king, beautiful in elevation. Psalm 48, verse 2 says, breathtaking. No one looks the other way, but if you did, if you look down the eastern slope of Olivet toward the Jordan River Valley toward the Dead Sea area, you'd see the second largest Palestinian city in the West Bank. And that Palestinian city, just two miles from Jerusalem over the Mount of Olives, is today called Al-Lazaria. Al-Lazaria, place of Lazarus. Interesting, in Arabic, it's the place of Lazarus. Recognized, Lazarus recognized, which he's recognized because of Jesus. So even today, the Arabs call it al Azariah. But in the first century, it was just a little village. It was not a big Palestinian city. Palestinians did not exist in the first century. It was just a village, the village of, in Greek, Bethanias, and it it means, Bethanias or Bethanias means House of dates, house of dates. A lot of date palm trees down in the region and in and around Bethany, house of dates. It also translates, and I find this interesting, house of misery, which for our story, there would be about four days of that. House of misery, and you might say, well, well, when is it the house of dates and when is it the house of misery? Well, it's the house of misery when you can't get a date, so you can just (laughs) remember it that way. It's also called in Hebrew. Bethananea. <laughs> Beth Ananea, Beth which is house of Yahweh's clouds. I like that. House of Yahweh's clouds. Beth Ananeya. Yah, when you see Yah in any Hebrew name, it's Yahweh. It's, it's indi- indicative of the name of God. So the house of Yahweh's clouds, and it's appropriate that Bethany be called that, that Beth Ananea be called the house of Yahweh's clouds because the grace of God was about to overshadow the entire village in a profound way. So that's the location, Bethany, backside of the Mount of Olives. Lazarus, second thing to note, Lazarus, and I just want to tell you what his name means if you were Hebrew. This is a a very well-known ancient Hebrew name. Lazarus in the Greek, Eleazar in Hebrew. Eleazar, which means he whom God helps. Or could just mean God helps, Eliezer. And that's Lazarus' name, okay? So Lazarus truly is he whom God helps in the village that sits under the, it's the house of Yahweh's clouds as he's about to be overshadowed by grace. It's really a beautiful picture. And then number three, love, love. Again, Jesus loved these siblings. And I wanna drive that point home because it's not gonna look like it at first. He loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 tells us the one who does not love does not know God. 1 John 4, verse 19, we love because he first loved us. And I've said before, we wouldn't even know how to love if he didn't love us first. We would have no idea what love looked like. We would know lust. We would know a love that fulfills my needs and my desires and my wants. Even friendship love can do that from time to time. You're friends with someone because, you know, you kind of, they make you feel good. Agape love, God's love, we would not know except that he first loved us. And this is a love story. In fact, love is at the heart of the resurrection. Love is at the heart of the resurrection. I don't mean that love is God's motive to resurrect. If you think ahead, down in verse 25, what we looked at on Easter Sunday, verse 25, Jesus says, I am the resurrection. I am the resurrection and the life. So what I'm saying when I say love is the heart of the resurrection, I'm saying the love of God in Christ is the heart of the resurrection any resurrection, any resurrection, your resurrection, my resurrection, the resurrection of Yaris' daughter, the resurrection of the widow's son of the city of Nain, the resurrection of Lazarus, all resurrection. It's because love is the heart of the resurrection and the resurrection is Jesus himself. But if Jesus is love, why do he wait? Verse six. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. If Jesus is love, why did he wait? And the wording is fascinating. In fact, it doesn't work. Verses five and six are connected by the conjunction so, which seems to me so incongruent. Listen to it put together. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved them. So when he heard he was sick, he stayed longer in the place where he was. I'm sorry, but if you love someone and you hear they're sick, you go. If you have a dear friend and you hear they're in need, you call. You respond immediately. You don't wait a couple of days to see what happens. He loved them, so he waited. Huh? That's strange to me. Verse 5 declares his love. Verse six, he lingers. Verse five, affirms his devotion. But in verse six, Jesus delays. Listen, Isaiah chapter 30, verse 18 says, the Lord longs to be gracious to you. And therefore, because he longs to be gracious to you, he waits, he waits on high to have compassion on you. For the Lord is a God of justice. How blessed are all those who long for him. There's another strange verse. Wait, he he longs to be gracious to you. Well, then be gracious to me, Lord. But he waits. His longing is what causes him to wait. The love of God is often best realized in his delay. Ever do that as a parent, ever delay your response to your kids because you wanna give them the response that's not what they want, it's what your love dictates for them. And the love of God is often realized in his delay. Some of you right now are in a delay, and I, I, you know, Perish the thought, I have no idea who is or what life circumstances, but maybe right now you're in a position where you're just waiting and waiting and waiting for something, perhaps a petition that you've put before the Lord, perhaps something to change in your life that you've just been waiting forever for. The love of God is often realized in his delay. He sees out what you do not see. He longs to be gracious, so he waits that the moment of his grace would be right and good, and perfect. Romans nine twenty two. What if God, Paul writes, although willing to demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? I don't know about you, but there are times I wonder, God, why don't you come and just deal with America right now? Come on, Lord, bring some justice. We're sick and tired of all this stuff that we see going on. The Lord waits because he longs to be gracious. Don't confuse patience with procrastination. That's not God. You know this, 2 Peter 3, 9, the Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. You could slap that verse right on John chapter 11. Listen to that again. He is not slow about his promise. He's, not wishing, he's patient toward you not wishing for any to perish. There are a whole lot more people involved here than Lazarus, who is beloved by Jesus. But what would come of this would be much bigger than one man being healed of a sickness. So Jesus waits. Jesus waits 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 5, Paul says, May the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the steadfastness, that is, the patient waiting of Christ. Now we've been over this many times over the years, and I think probably because I need to hear it over and over, there is a grace in waiting. And in learning how for us on our part to wait on the Lord, recognizing that he longs to be gracious, therefore he waits. I can put it to you this way. God's delays are not denials. God's delays are not denials. They are laden with grace. They come from the heart of love, which is the heart of the resurrection. His love is always greater than our longings or our yearnings or our aches. And so God waits for the sake of love, Jesus waits and doesn't leave right away, verse seven. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let's go to Judea again. And the disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews are just now seeking to stone you and are you going there again? <laughs> In other words, now you wanna go? Lord, the fact that you waited a couple days here, that was wisdom. You know, I can just see the disciples. I, I, you know these guys, They love Jesus, they're following Jesus, but at the first sign of danger, they're out of there. And I'm sure they were very content in their little stronghold across the Jordan, 25 miles away, nice and safe out there, got plenty of water, you know, people can come out here and see you, Jesus. This is a good place to, you know, let's plant our flag and pitch our tent and stay right here, and Jesus says, time to go to Judea, and this is gonna rattle them a bit. It's a bad time. Well, Jesus' timing isn't always consistent with mine doesn't always go with what I think is the best thing. I say now, and he delays. He moves out just as I'm saying, wait. And you see both going on here that the sisters are wanting Jesus to come right now and he delays. The apostles are ready for him to delay and off he goes. So the best thing to do is just follow Jesus. Just stay on his path. If he waits, you wait. If he goes, you go. It's called learning to trust. Verse nine, Jesus again answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. If anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Now, I love this about Jesus. How rarely does he just answer a question? He's always the teacher. He's always drawing out faith. They say to him, what, you want to go now? Are you going there again? They want to stone you. This is dangerous, Lord. And Jesus turns it into a teaching. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he does not see the light of this world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light of the world is not in him. And I can just see John looking at Peter and going, what's he saying now? And it's a good question to ask. What is he saying now? What does he mean by this? With calm certainty, Jesus, in essence, is saying, bros, there are still a few hours of daylight left. It's not Passover yet. It's not my time yet. We still have have a bit of time to do what we need to do. Jesus is so in line. Remember, we've talked about this, how in line he is with the Father's will. He always knows exactly what he needs to do, when he needs to do it, where he needs to go, when he needs to go there. And when he needs to stop or delay, as in this current story. And so Jesus is saying, look, there's still time. Don't worry. In essence, we're going into Judea. Don't worry. There are a few more things I need to do before what I've told you. And he had told them, which is why they were so afraid. He told them that his, his upcoming murder was impending, that it was going to happen. And so they're, they're all rattled by all of this stuff. But there are still a few hours of daylight left. Ephesians five fifteen, Paul says, therefore be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. Anyone disagree with that, that the days are evil? Okay, it's interesting, Paul says the days are evil. He doesn't say, so find the tallest mountain you can get to and hole up there until the rapture. He says, because the days are evil, make the most of your time. How do we do that? We walk in the light. Though there be much darkness, we keep walking in the light. We keep looking to Jesus and doing what Jesus is doing. Colossians chapter four, verse five. Paul says, conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be with grace, seasoned with salt, as it were, so that you will know how you should respond to each person. And think about this with me, for all the prophecy updates and for all of the fascination that we have with these times of the signs, and I am fascinated and I'm watching and I, I love to talk about these things, but you know what, honestly, it's not for vain fascination. We don't talk about this stuff because it's a buzz. And I don't mean to be a buzzkill tonight, but turning your Bibles over to Romans chapter 13 and listen to what Paul says about this, this, this recognition that we are in the last days. And we, how much more than Paul, 2,000 years later, at the last of the last days, truly, and making the most of our time, recognizing the evil of the days, understanding we've got to conduct ourselves with wisdom. We need to walk in the light as he is in the light. But Romans chapter 13, picking up in verse 8, Paul puts it all into focus. And while you're turning there one more time, listen to what Jesus said. Are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Who's the light of the world? It's the Sunday school answer, so it's easy for you. Jesus is the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. Walk in the light. Jesus says, we still have some daylight. I'm still with you guys. Don't worry about it. Let's go. Paul writes, Romans 13, verse eight, owe nothing to anyone except to love one another. For he who loves, he says for the second time, he who loves his neighbor has fulfilled the law. For this, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, it is summed up in this saying, you shall for the third time. Love your neighbor as yourself. Paul quotes Leviticus 19, 18. Then he says, love for the fourth time does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, love for the fifth time is the fulfillment of the law. Five times love, five times the grace of love. This is our calling This is what we are supposed to be about. So how do we do this? Verse 11, do this. Knowing the time, that it's already the hour for you to awaken from sleep. For now salvation is nearer to us than when we believed. The night is almost gone and the day is near. See, we're in the night. When Jesus was here, he was the light of the world. He says, as long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And then he goes. And so we settle into this season of, of night. The night is almost over. The day is coming. Therefore, let us lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. And how do we do that? We love. We love. I've said it before, but I'll put it to you again that we above all, those who believe that we are in the last days, those who believe that the end, that the tribulation is coming quickly upon this world those who believe that jesus could at any time call us out of the world all of that belief all that understanding all of that prophetic knowledge should do one thing to us it should cause us to love more it should make us more passionate and more loving in this world let me tell you what's not loving going along with all the things of culture Going on along with all the, all the gender stuff that we see happening in our culture right now, and I don't even know how many, we, we said this earlier today, I don't know how many genders there even are anymore, because they just keep adding new ones. And if you see what the Bible has to say about it, the Bible says two. In the beginning he made them male and female. Now I'm not gonna sidetrack on that right now. Two genders though, let me ask you the question. Is it more loving knowing that the judgment of God is about to come on this world? Is it more loving to tell people the truth and seek to show them speaking the truth in love? Is that more loving or is it more loving just to kind of play along, pretend we don't know any better, invite people just to be however they are and send them to hell in a handbasket? Which is more loving? We become more loving when we're grounded in the truth, we become more loving when we understand that the day is almost over, that this season is near to an end. Actually, that the night is almost over and and the day is about to come. That makes us more loving. Paul puts it in that context. That's how you love, 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 he says, and then he says, do it knowing the time. There's your motivation. You know you don't have much time left. How much do you love your friends? How much do you love your family members? When you know the hour, how much love do we have for them? And to put on the Lord Jesus, man, that is to love. To, to wear the armor of light, that is to love. Again, that is to walk in the light as he is in the light. There was and there is still time to do what the Father sent him to do. That's what he's saying to the apostles. And there is, and there still is, at least for now, time for us to do what God has called us to do. And it is to love in this world, to love enough to take the risk of opening our mouths, and yes, possibly offending someone, not with intent to offend, but with intent to offer salvation. Love without fear of darkness. That's what Jesus is talking about. Time to go. We got some things to do here, guys. And verse 11, he continues. This he said, and after that, he said to them, our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go so that I may awaken him out of sleep. The disciples then said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Do <laughs> now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he was speaking of literal Sleep. So funny, these guys. So when Jesus had said to them, so then Jesus said to them plainly, Lazarus is dead. This is what I'm saying. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there so that you may believe, but let us go to him. This is not the slumber of sleep. That's literally what he says. uh, When it says in verse 13, they thought he was speaking of literal sleep. They thought he was speaking of the slumber of sleep. He was speaking of death and he was speaking euphemistically. But note that Jesus even says this. He's very clear. He knows exactly what he's doing. I'm glad for your sakes, I was not there. Why? Because if he had been there, he would have healed Lazarus and there wouldn't have been a death. He would have healed him just of the sickness, no big deal. They'd seen that a million times. They had seen the healing of Yaris's daughter, but again, that was just after a few minutes. They'd seen the healing of the widow's son, but again, that was within 24 hours. So, you know, I mean, really dead, maybe not dead, who knows? I mean, I, I believe obviously that both were really dead, but people could make the argument, now it's four days. Jesus waits to make absolutely clear what he's about to do. If I had been there, You wouldn't be changed by this. You wouldn't be touched by this, Jesus says. It's interesting, Jesus said that I must awaken him out of sleep and then had to clarify that Lazarus was dead because for Jesus, awakening Lazarus from death is no more difficult than waking someone up from a nap. He's Jesus. But listen, in the Bible, sleep is not descriptive of death. It's euphemistic. For death, and you need to be clear on that. And I mention this from time to time because the cults, the cults teach uh, soul sleep, and there are some uh, denominational groups that will teach and talk about soul sleep. You die, your body goes in the grave, and you sleep the sweet rest of sleep. And that's not true. That's not what the Bible teaches. Well, well right here, Jesus said he'd fallen asleep. That's because his body looks asleep. When someone dies, the body looks asleep, and so it was a euphemism to say that the body was asleep, to say that someone had died. But it doesn't mean that you're asleep in death. First Thessalonians 4.13, Paul says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, euphemism, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep in Jesus. And trust me, they are not sleeping in the presence of God right now. It's not a bunch of cots in heaven. They're in his presence, wide awake, but their bodies, if we're to look at them right now, look asleep. So that's all it means. And I pointed out again to clarify from what the cults and false teachers will preach about the doctrine of soul sleep. But especially understanding this, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 6, being always of good courage and knowing that while we are at home in the body, we're absent from the Lord, we walk by faith, not by sight, Right? So Paul says, we are of good courage, and I say prefer rather to be absent from the body and to be where? Present with the Lord, at home with the Lord. So when you die in Jesus, when you die in Christ, your spirit goes home to be with the Lord immediately. You're not in the ground waiting for that to happen. Your spirit goes home. Bible's very clear on this. And Jesus didn't die for us to snooze. Jesus died. He said, John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. And as we said last week, that's life now. But you know what? It's also life immediately after you die. Verse 16. So therefore, Thomas, who is called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us go so that we may die with him. All right, Thomas, here we go. And it gives you an insight into what the disciples are thinking to go back into Judea is to go into the danger zone. We go there, we're, we're at the threat of death, and so I love Thomas. Do you realize that both his name and his nickname mean the same thing? That Tomas means twofold, and Didymus means twin. So Thomas Didymus is the twofold twin. That's the meaning of his name. Now, Thomas Didymus, Thomas Didymus is It's either a play, Didymus was a play on his first name, perhaps, since he was Thomas, they made fun of, (laughs) ah, Didymus, and they just started calling him the twin because of Thomas. It also could describe very easily two sides to this man. The twofold Thomas, the Thomas who is devoted and very soon after this, doubtful. The Thomas who is spirited and soon skeptical. Or the, the Thomas who's committed And later on, KG. Which Thomas are we going to see today? You know, we could ask the same question about any one of us here tonight. I think we need to cut Thomas a little bit of slack. I love the fact that here, Thomas is the one who says, let's die with Jesus. He's ready to fight. He's ready to go stand with the Lord here at the end. And by the way, if you skip all the way over to John chapter 20, real quickly, uh, eight days after the resurrection, you remember Thomas was not with them on resurrection eve when Jesus showed up. Well, now eight days later, Thomas is there with the disciples. Jesus shows up again, specifically for Thomas. And we're told in verse 24 of John chapter 20 that Thomas, twofold, one of the 12 called Didymus, the twin, so, Thomas Didymus, the twofold twin, or just T. Diddy, which I like. But <laughs> I've said that so many times, and you just love that, don't you, Deb? So, T. Diddy was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples were saying to him, we've seen the Lord, but he said, unless I see in his hands the imprint of the nails and put my finger in the place of the nails or put my hand into his sight, I will not believe. Well, there's the doubtful Thomas, the doubting Thomas. We've got that phrase and it has stuck for 2,000 years and it's not fair. Watch this. After eight days, his disciples were again inside. Thomas was with them. Jesus came, the doors having been shut, stood in their midst and said, shalom with you. And then he says to Thomas, reach here with your finger, see my hands, reach here with your hand and put it into my side and do not be unbelieving but believing. Now watch what Thomas does. He says, he answers and says to him, my Lord and my God, there's the devoted Thomas. He wasn't doubtful for long. And I'll remind you of this when we get to John chapter 20, the emotions must have been intense that week, painful. Thomas loved Jesus, and it's my considered opinion that Thomas wasn't doubting because he didn't think it was possible. He was doubting because he didn't want to be hurt again. Didn't want to give, be given this promise that Jesus was alive only to find out it wasn't true. Last weekend was too painful. I don't need to go through that again. Don't tell me he's still alive, and then he sees him. And Thomas's response to seeing Jesus was immediately my Lord and my God, and you know what? Thomas is the first apostle of any of the 11 that were there that we see overtly worshiping Jesus. The rest didn't yet. Even after seeing him the week before, a week has gone by, and they're still like in this weird place of, well, we saw him. But Thomas is the only one we see actually step out and worship and cry out and call him my Lord and my God. I just love that about Thomas. Some also think, and I'll I'll remind you of this: that Thomas Didymus, that he's called the twin, because that was a nickname, because Thomas himself looked so much like Jesus, that they called him the twin of of Jesus. Perhaps, perhaps. We know right here and back in John chapter eleven, he's ready to die, ready to die for Christ. So, be nice to Thomas. All right, and by the way, be nice to Martha. Oh, she's just too busy for faith, too busy for the Lord. She's all, oh, you're a Martha, aren't you? You should be a Mary. We say that all the time. You know, that's a thing. Martha and Thomas, be nice to these two. Both, both express great faith in Jesus right here in this chapter. You know, when they're not too busy or doubtful. So tradition ultimately tells us one other thing about Thomas, and that is that Thomas was run through by a spear on mission to India. So here's a man who you can say doubtful all you want, but he gave his life for Jesus. Verse 17, when Jesus came, he found that he, that is Lazarus, had already been in the tomb four days Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, remember, up over the Mount of Olives backside, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. Martha, therefore, when she heard that Jesus was coming, went to meet him, but Mary stayed at the house. So this time, Martha goes to Jesus. Don't miss that. Yeah, she was busy cleaning back in in Luke, but now she runs to Jesus. Mary doesn't. For those of you who are like, I'm so like Mary. I sit at Jesus' feet. Yeah, well, Mary stayed back when Jesus came too. And Martha went to greet him, to meet him. Mary's distracted by her heartache. So who's to say which one's the more faithful sister, Mary or Martha? It's a ridiculous question. By the way, Christian comparisons always are ridiculous. So one other thing In this moment, Martha goes rushing out to see Jesus. You've got to remember and getting real with what's going on here, the burial of their brother was four days earlier. How do you feel about the loss of a loved one four days later? You're still in the grieving process. This is still raw, this is still fresh. And so as the sisters react to Jesus and what they say to Jesus, it comes right out of broken hearts over the loss of a dearly beloved brother. Verse 21, Martha then said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I often wonder how did that feel for Jesus to hear that? Jesus, who delayed two days because he knew he had to, he knew there was something bigger that needed to be done here. He knew what was coming, and he delayed, and the first thing he hears from Martha is, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. That must have gone right into his heart, like a spear, if you'd been here. And then she says in verse 22, even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you, hey, there's some faith in there. Jesus, even now, I know you can ask. That's a remarkable statement coming out of such pain. And by the way, verse 21 is not an accusation. It is a painful plea. If you'd been here, if you'd only been here, have you ever said that to the Lord? Lord, if you'd been here, this wouldn't have happened. Lord, where were you when such and such took place? Lord, why didn't you show up? Have you ever prayed that? Because that's exactly what she's saying. Where were you, Lord? It's not that she's angry with him or accusing him. She's speaking out of her pain and she's speaking with faith. Even now, Lord, even now. In verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha goes church. Verse 24, I know he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. What I called recently the sweet by and by. And Jesus said to her, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even if he dies and everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And she said to him, and here her faith rises up again, yes, Lord, I have believed that you are the Christ, the son of God, he who comes into the world. And I have believed is present, guys, this this verb form. It is I am believing. I have, I believed, I believe, and I will believe. This is ongoing action that she declares. What a great faith. Yes, Lord, I believe. I believe you. The circumstances of Lazarus' death put Martha's faith and her theology to the ultimate test of the mortal coil. That is the ultimate test of any of our faith when we come face to face with death itself. And then do we believe. And then do we continue to trust the Lord for his truth. I have believed. Let me put it to you more succinctly that the the phrase there in the Greek is perfect, active, indicative. Perfect, active, indicative. I have believed. Let me retranslate that for you. Martha's faith is continuous, immediate, and certain. Perfect, active, indicative. Continuous, immediate, and certain. Certain. That's how she expresses when she says, I believe, I believe. How about you? How about me? Does that describe my faith? I asked myself several times this week, is my faith continuous, immediate, and certain? See, the reality is about painful times like this. Hard times don't knock first and see if you're home. Hard times come barging in. Hard times don't ask for permission to enter, do they, Aaron and Kelly? They just show up and you're not ready for them and you did not even vacuum the house or set out snacks. Hard times just come barreling in. They strike like bludgeons out of nowhere. Hard times and painful and difficult things. And the question is, when the hard time hits, will my faith be perfect, active, indicative? Will my faith be continuous through that, immediate in that and certain beyond my circumstances. Jesus said in John 5, 21, for just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son also gives life to those, to, to those whom he wishes. The son gives life. Jesus had spoken this much earlier in his ministry. Had Martha heard that? I don't probably. I'm sure she had heard something about, you know, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I come that they may have life. I am the light of the world. I'm life in this world. I'm the bread of life. I'm sure she heard many of these things come out of the mouth of Jesus. And the question is when death comes, when despair comes, when hurts come, do I believe what I have learned of him? And by the way, this is why to me, our gathering here, more than just once a week is so important because this is the training ground. This is where the word gets in so when the hard times come barreling in, we've already got that certain faith that is immediate and continuous. We're ready. We may not be ready emotionally and we're gonna run the gamut of emotions, but we're ready faith-wise not to be bowled over because we know him whom we have believed. John 14, 19, Jesus said, because I live, you will live also. See, I know that even when death comes. John 20, 31, these have been written so you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in his name. I know that. I know it with certainty. Romans eight eleven, if the spirit who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. I know that. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. And I know that. I know this is true. Now, watch the heart of the resurrection. Eyes on Jesus, verse 28. When she had said this, she went away and called Mary, her sister, saying secretly, the teacher is here and is calling for you, This is so tender. This is Jesus. He doesn't go to Mary in the midst of the crowd and the mourners and the people. He calls for her. Martha, go get Mary. He doesn't even come into Bethany yet. He's outside Bethany and he says, Martha, go get Mary and bring her. Because Jesus needs to see her. She needs to see him. There needs to be a moment together before they're in the midst of the memorials and the mourners and all that's going on back at the house teacher's calling for you. Verse 29, and when she heard it, she got up quickly and was coming to him. Now, Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. And then the Jews who were in the house with her and consoling her, when they saw that Mary got up and quickly went out, they followed her. Looky-loos. So I, by the way, those, when you hear, that's me. I just added that, it's not in the Bible. The looky-loo thing, That, that, okay. They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there, and here's the deal. They misunderstood where she was going. They had no idea what was going on with Mary. Oftentimes, when you are going through hard times or loss or grief or hurt, those around you don't know what you're going through, and they don't know where you're going. They misunderstand you. That's common in situations of loss. The people don't really understand where you're at until they go through it themselves or until they're in that same thing or have experienced the same thing, Mary gets up and goes and they think, we gotta go with Mary because she's going back to the tomb. It's gonna be more weeping and wailing, so let's go be there for Mary. She's not going to the place of death. She's going to the person of life. She's not going to the tomb. She's going to the Christ. And in verse 32, therefore, when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him, and fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It is the exact same thing Martha said. And it's obvious what the talking points had been between Mary and Martha for the last four days. If he had been here. And so that's the first thing Martha says. Now it's the first thing Mary says. If you had been here, if only you had been here, if only, if only, again, have you said that? If only Jesus, you know what Jesus says to if only? Know what his response is? I can give it to you specifically, it's in the Bible. A helpless father of a demon-possessed son cries out, if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, Mark chapter nine, verse 23, if you can, if only you had been here, Jesus, if I was, all things are possible to him who believes. Faith rejects ifs for the whens. It's when Jesus gets here. It's not if. He's coming. He's coming. He'll be here. It's not if. It's when. Because again, God's delays are not denials. There's something you might want to circle or at least pay attention to in verse 32 about Mary, that she came where Jesus was. She saw him and she fell at his feet you realize that every single time we see Mary, she is at the feet of Jesus? We see her in Luke chapter 10, verse 39, when all is well and they're in the house and Martha's busy making the meal and cleaning the house and Mary is where? At his feet. We see her right here when all is not well, all is weeping and she's falling at his feet. And we're going to see her again in the very next chapter in verse three, when all is not well or weeping all his worship and she is at his feet bowing down and anointing mary knows jesus feet well because she spent a lot of time there and so again in chapter 12 verse 3 i won't read it right now we'll come to it later but uh wow anointing the toes and arches of messiah (laughs) with precious costly perfume Because Mary, whether she's at rest, in sorrow, or in worship, she's at the feet of Jesus, which is a great picture for us. It makes no difference to her what's going on, what the circumstances are. She's at his feet. I I tell you what, Mary and Martha, I cannot wait to meet these sisters. Both of them have immense faith. Neither one of them express religious exercise. They just love Jesus. They want to listen to him, they want to be with him, and they trust in him. So this is personal for the sisters. And by the way, it's personal for Jesus too. Verse 33, when Jesus therefore saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her also weeping, he was, note this, deeply moved in spirit and was troubled and said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Verse 36, so the Jews were saying, see how he loved him? And I ask you tonight, do you see the heart of the resurrection? You see the heart of Jesus here? This is God's heart beating in the chest of Jesus. Now the Jewish friends of a bereaved Mary, that they misunderstand, they don't get something here. Friends, again, often misunderstand what's happening in the midst of sorrow or heartache or difficulty or loss. Friends try to be there for us. We do the best we can for each other, but if we haven't experienced it, we don't always know exactly what to do. And they say, see how he loved his friend. You might say, wait, verse 36 doesn't add his friend. Well, that's the word. See how he loved him, it's phileo. See how he friendship loved him and what they don't understand in this moment was Jesus coming late to the funeral, having missed the burial, isn't just showing up and, and, and weeping here because he just, ah wow, he just loved his friend. No, he's late. The four to six day delay of Jesus was all about Agape. It's because he really loved Lazarus and the sisters and all the Jews gathering around and the disciples. This is an agape moment because Jesus' timing is always dictated by love. The heart of the resurrection, it does not require alignment to your calendar or mine. The heart of Jesus is not about meeting my agenda or my schedule. He does it when it's right for unconditional love, verse 37. But some of them said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man also from dying? Listen, this is not about delaying death. This is about conquering it. That's what he's up to here. He's about to show a victory over death, not just a delay of the inevitable mortality of Lazarus anyway. Verse 38, so Jesus again being deeply moved within came to the tomb. Now, it was a cave and a stone was lying against it. That's what they did. Jesus said, remove the stone. Martha, the sister of the deceased, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be a stench for he's been dead four days. Remember Sunday, I said Lazarus was stinking dead. Jesus said to her, verse 40, did I not say to you that if you believe, you'll see the glory of God? So they removed the stone. By the way, verse 41, they removed the stone. They couldn't have done it if Martha hadn't said, go ahead. Faith, she's trusting. She knows Jesus has got to be up to something. Now, it may be a faith beyond faith. It may be a hope beyond hope. It maybe she's just, she'll take anything. But they roll away the stone. They remove the stone. And then Jesus raised his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. But because of the people standing around, I said it, so they may believe that you sent me. Now, that's so weird because if he's God, why is he saying this? If he's God, why does he pray to God? You know, the old question. If he really is God, why does he pray to the Father? And I remind you that Jesus exemplifies the relationship to which we've been called that Jesus is not just acting it out, he's living it out, that Jesus is the perfect example of God with us, but he's also the perfect example of humanity to God. How am I supposed to be in a relationship with God? Like Jesus. He shows us how. So he speaks honestly and openly with the Father, and note that too, that's just just another little side note. When he's talking to God, He's not talking in parables or, or shadowy terms or phrases that, that where he's trying. He doesn't have to draw out faith from God. So he's just shooting straight. I knew you always hear me, but because the people standing around, I said it so they may believe that you sent me. <laughs> Son talking to the father. Just beautiful. Verse 43 And when he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice Lazarus, come forth. The man who had died came forth bound hand and foot with wrappings and his face was wrapped around with a cloth and Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what he had done, believed in him. Agape, the heart of the resurrection. Many believed in him. Many more lives are set on a path of eternity because he allowed one man, one dear friend to die. But note this, Lazarus came out of the tomb, still bound, still bound. After Jesus' resurrection, do you remember what happened when Peter and John had the foot race to the tomb? Do you remember what they saw? I'll read it to you here. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 5 Which says, stooping and looking in, he that is Peter, sees the linen wrappings lying there, and but he did not go in. And then Simon Peter also come, or Simon Peter also comes, sorry, that was John who looked in and saw it and didn't go in. And then Peter comes following him and blows right by him and enters the tomb. And he sees the linen wrappings lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on his head, not lying with the linen wrappings, but rolled up in a place all by itself. Why didn't Lazarus come out that way? Lazarus came out of the tomb. Bound in Jesus' case, the linen wrappings were superfluous, gloriously superfluous, unnecessary because Jesus would never need them again. Jesus rose never to die again. Lazarus rose, still bound in mortality, he would still die. There's still a binding on Lazarus, bound to this mortal life, bound for the grave. Again, as wonderful as the miracle is, there would be another funeral for Lazarus at some point down the line. Jesus said in John 5, 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live and he's talking eternally. So we, we can get excited about it and we can say, man, I want to see resurrection and I, I would love to. I wanna see someone raised from the dead. The only problem with the resurrection in this age is everyone raised from the dead is gonna die again. Still bound. You can come out of the grave, but you still got the burial clause because you're gonna need them, bro. You're gonna go down again, unless, of course, we're caught up. But Jesus Jesus is making such a powerful picture here. He has the power over death. He is the conqueror of death. He is the resurrection and the life in and of himself. Even if someone comes out of the tomb still bound, even though Lazarus would be bound for the grave yet again, Lazarus is going to hear the voice of the son of man and he will rise when we rise. And what's great about Lazarus is he's already familiar with the voice. So he's probably gonna be up before us, you know, Lazarus, come forth, Jesus says. Come up here, Jesus says to you and to me. And when we hear it, we're gonna go. When Lazarus hears it, he's already been through this once, so he knows exactly what to do. But note this, that Jesus is inviting faith to, the un, to, to unbound eternal life in all of us. And he still wants the unbound eternal saints to be engaged. What are you saying, Rick? Notice how he involves the witnesses here in the raising of Lazarus. All Jesus does is say, Lazarus, come forth. What does he do to the witnesses? What does he say to the witnesses? First, he says, remove the stones. Remove the stone. So take away the obstacle. Secondly, he says, unbind him. And then thirdly, he says, let him go. Remove the stone, unbind, let them go. You know, that's our calling with the gospel. We are called to be those who remove the stones. Take away the obstacles. One of the best way to do that is intercessory prayer that people can make, as we've heard Les say many times, unhindered choices. Remove the stone. Roll back the stone. In a friend's life, in a family member's life, as you talk to them about Jesus, what you really want to be doing is, what are the obstacles? Maybe think this way evangelistically. What are the obstacles that's keeping this person from coming to faith? As we were talking about right before we started, is it because you have to wear a suit to church? Hey, come to the bridge, wear jeans. Remove the stone. (laughs) Get out of the way, whatever's in the way. Think that way with your friends and your family. What are the things that stand between them and the gospel? As I talked with someone on Sunday, you know what one of the big stones was for this this person? I've been hurt by church. So my attempt to remove the stone in the moment was to say, oh really, so have I. this person was shocked. You've been hurt by church? Oh, yeah. Can't go to church and not be hurt by church. It's gonna happen. And I say that with a smile because I love the church and I love our fellowship. And I love that God puts us messy human beings together and says, now get along, kids. Sticks us all in a room and says, play nice. (laughs) And we have to learn to do that and it's not easy. And sometimes people have taken my toys so what do you do? You grow in love. You learn how to love people who are not lovable or not lovely. And you start to find out that you're not so lovable all the time either. Remove the stone. If someone's hurt by church, you, you agree with, I understand that, I get that. Sure, church can be a, a, a hurtful place. That doesn't mean you stay away. You know, we're working through this together. But I I get that. There are stones that are rolled over the tombs of people's lives. Move the stone and then unbind them. How do I unbind someone? By the gospel of grace. See, the gospel's freedom. The gospel of Jesus Christ if the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. That's the gospel. Galatians 5, 1, it was for freedom that Christ set us free. Therefore, keep standing firm and do not be subject again to a yoke of slavery. Hey, Jesus will set you free. Unbind them. Remove the stone, unbind them, and, and finally let them go into the freedom of Christ. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven from which we also eagerly wait for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform the body of our humble state into conformity with the body of his glory by the exertion of the power that he has even to subject all things to himself. Man, our calling as followers of Jesus, remove the stone, unbind them, let them go. And Jesus invites the mourners to be part of this resurrection process. He says, come forth, and then he has them do the work. And so because of this, many of the Jews believed in him. But, verse 46, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them the things which Jesus had done. And that happens, they take away your toy, and then some kid's running off to tell mama. Therefore, the chief priests and the Pharisees convened a council, and we read this on Good Friday. And we're saying, what are we doing? For this man is performing many signs. Note that John mentions this in the chapter of the final sign that he's gonna give in his gospel. I just love it. It's like he's underscoring the signs of Jesus. And there were many more than the seven I've presented to you. But even the Jews recognize this. This man is performing many signs or miracles. They couldn't deny it. They didn't want it. They were angry at him for proclaiming himself Messiah, specifically God, but they could not deny the signs. Verse 48, if we let him go on like this, all men will believe in him. Oh no. (laughs) Doesn't that sound like the world we live in? If we let the church go on like this, people are gonna start following Jesus. If we don't get rid of Christianity in the marketplace, people are just gonna keep going to church. And we're all gonna be bound by religion, which is so untrue, it's such a lie. Many will believe in him, the Romans will come and they'll take away both our place and our nation. So you see what their motivation really was. One of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you take into account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and that the whole nation not perish. John says, he didn't say this on his own initiative. But being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Do you realize that the prophet doesn't even need to be a follower? Caiaphas is not a follower of Jesus, but he's prophesying. There's only one way you can prophesy, by the Spirit of God. So the Spirit of God is giving Caiaphas words to speak that are prophetic of what's about to happen to Jesus. Now, Caiaphas doesn't have a clue in the world what he's saying. He's just thinking, we need to take him out to save the nation. But the reality is, it was for the common good. Remember, Good Friday, that word expedient, it means for the common good. It was for the common good that Jesus died. Amazing. So from that day on, they planned together to kill him. Therefore, verse 54, Jesus no longer continued to walk publicly among the Jews, but went away from there to the country near the wilderness into a city called Ephraim, not the, not the region of Ephraim, but the city, a city of Ephraim. And there he stayed with his disciples Now the Passover of the Jews was near. Many went up to Jerusalem out of the country before the Passover to purify themselves. They were seeking for Jesus and were saying to one another as they stood in the temple, what do you think? That he will not come to the feast at all? And now the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he was to report it so they might seize him. And you can hear the drum beats of judgment just pounding right now as we're starting to gear up for the final week that we'll pick up in chapter 12. But note this back in... In the last part, Jesus no longer walked publicly among the Jews. we see the attitude, we see the murderous, venomous hearts of the Jewish leaders. These are hearts of fear and hearts of power and hearts of, I don't know, self-protection, hearts of pride. And because of that, they completely missed the heart of the resurrection. They missed who Jesus was. They, they didn't get him. They didn't understand. What he told Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. So verse 54, Jesus stayed out in the city of Ephraim until Passover. Just real quickly, Ephraim, you might want to jot this down, means double ash heap. It's a nice name for a city. Where do you live, double ash heap? <laughs> or, or and this is interesting, because it's kind of like, it's like what we were saying before about Bethany, that it, you know it means house of dates or house of misery? Well, this this means double ash heap, or it could mean doubly fruitful. Aren't those kind of like polar opposites, double ash heap, doubly fruitful? And actually they're not. I know this by experience. When we built my house about 17 years ago now, we had a huge slash pile. Because we, we built it in a forest and there were a lot of trees that had to come down so that we could put the house there in the middle. We cut down as few as possible for you huggers. We were careful. <laughs> but we had a big, massive slash pile and we had to burn all that stuff down. And so that ground was baked and burnt. It was an ash heap when it was all said and done. Nothing on my property grows, nowhere on my property do things grow as well as right there. That is the place. You want to grow something, grow it in the ash heap. Plant it right there. I mean, I got stuff growing there. I don't even know what it is. But anyway, everything grows well there. The double ash heap, doubly fruitful. And it makes me think of the fact that the fruitfulness of Jesus comes right out of the ashes of his death. That Jesus will say in John 12, 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And so here, right prior to this final week, Jesus is staying in Ephraim, the city of the double ash heap, the city of the double fruitful. And that's, I don't know, could that be picturesque of what's about to happen? Perhaps. But you know what's more amazing to me? If we close up John 11... What's more amazing than this story of the raising of Lazarus, more amazing to me than even the resurrection power as Jesus says, Lazarus come forth and the bound man walks out of the tomb, stunning after four days, more amazing than that. And it's what I hope you saw. And it is the unveiled humanity of Jesus. Jesus is more human in this chapter than I think anywhere else that we've seen him. We see him emotionally. We see he was deeply moved. Verse 33 and verse 38 repeats. We see he was troubled. Verse 33. We see that, verse 35, Jesus wept. Sadly to me, that's been made a joke. It's the shortest verse of the Bible and the one all the kids in Sunday school want to memorize. You know, Jesus wept. And yet it is the moment in this gospel where Jesus is more human than any other time. And I am so thankful for that. What does it mean that Jesus wept? And we'll talk about that on Sunday. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word tonight. Thank you for moving us through this this incredible act of love. This absolutely amazing extension of your love Shown through Jesus to Lazarus and Martha and Mary and all the Jews gathered around and his own disciples, this act of such sublime grace in the raising of Lazarus to depict the true resurrection in the life in Jesus. Wow, Lord, if they missed it then, some believed we see, some obviously missed it. I pray that we don't miss it tonight that we get to see Jesus, you at your most human, and yet acting with the power of God, the God-man. It's just amazing. We praise you. We thank you for your word to us. In Jesus' name.